Chapter 17 Our Lord's Testimony Concerning Himself The closer a person approaches God, the less worthy he feels. A painting under candlelight shows fewer defects than under the brilliance of the sun. So too the souls who are some distance from God feel more certain of their moral integrity than those who are very close to Him. Those who have left the lights and glamours of the world and for years have been irradiated by His countenance have been the foremost to acknowledge themselves as freighted down with the great burden of sin. St. Paul, who has been such an edification to men, called himself the chief of sinners. In the presence of the holiest of creatures, the soul becomes self-accusing and broken-hearted with the weight of its defects. As evil men feel their guilt more in the presence of an innocent babe than in the companionship of those who are wicked like themselves, so he who loves God is the most deeply burdened with the sense of his own unworthiness. But our blessed Lord, who claimed oneness with God, never once confessed a sin or an imperfection. In vain can this be attributed to moral dullness, since his analysis of sin in others was so penetrating. What man is there in the world who could boldly stand up before great crowds and say, Can any of you convict me of sin? John 8:46. Though our blessed Lord associated himself with sinners, there never existed the least suspicion against his spotless innocence. He told his disciples to pray, Forgive us our trespasses. But not even in his last agony did he have to utter such a prayer. He forgave the sins of others in his name. Thy sins are forgiven thee, and yet never asked for pardon. He issued the challenge, If you cannot detect a moral blot on my escutcheon, then credit me with truth. Because he was sinless, he asserted his position in such a way as to make claims upon all mankind, such as calling himself the light of a darkened world. I am the light of the world. He who follows me can never walk in darkness. He will possess the light which is life. John 8:12. Note, it is not his teaching that is the light of the world, but rather his person. As there is only one sun to light a world physically, so he was asserting that he was the only light for the world spiritually. Without him, every soul would be wrapped in darkness. As dust in the room cannot be seen until the light is let in, so no man can know himself until this light shows him his true condition. He who was only a good man could never claim to be the light of the world, for there would cling to him some of the trappings and faults of even the best human nature. Buddha wrote a code which he said would be useful to guide men in darkness, but he never claimed to be the light of the world. Buddhism was born with a disgust for the world, when a prince's son deserted his wife and child, turning from the pleasures of existence to the problems of existence. Burnt by the fires of the world and already weary with it, Buddha turned to ethics. But our Divine Lord never had this feeling of disgust. If he was the light, it was not because he had injured himself stumbling in the darkness. Mohammed admitted at his death that he was no light of the world, but said, Fearful, beseeching, seeking for shelter, weak and in need of mercy, I confess my sin before thee, presenting my supplication as the poor supplicate the rich. Confucius was so overshadowed by the darkness of sin that he never made such a claim. He admitted, that I have not been able to practice virtue aright, that I have not been able to utter or pursue aright what I have learned, that I have been unable to change that which was wrong, these are my sorrows. In knowledge, perhaps, I am equal to other men, but I have not been able to transform the essence of what is noble into deed. Before his death, Buddha said to Ananda, his favorite disciple, The doctrines and the laws, O Ananda, which I have taught and proclaimed to you, they shall be your master when I have left you. Our blessed Lord left the world without leaving any written message. His doctrine was himself. Ideal and history were identified in him. The truth that all other ethical teachers proclaimed and the light that they gave to the world was not in them, but outside them. Our divine Lord, however, identified divine wisdom with himself. It was the first time in history that it was ever done, and it has never been done since. This identification of his personality with wisdom he broadened when he said, I am the way, I am truth and life, 
Nobody can come to the Father except through me. If you had learned to recognize me, you would have learned to recognize my Father too. John 14.6 This is equivalent to saying that without the way there is no going, without the truth there is no knowing, without the life there is no living. The way becomes lovable not when it is in abstract codes and commandments, but when it is personal. As Plato once said, the Father of the world is hard to discover, and when discovered cannot be communicated. Our Lord's answer to Plato would have been that the Father is hard to discover unless he is revealed through the person of his Son. There is no such thing as seeking first the truth and then finding Christ, any more than there is any point in lighting tapers to find the sun. As scientific truths put us in an intelligent relation with the cosmos, as historic truth puts us in temporal relation with the rise and fall of civilizations, so does Christ put us in intelligent relation with God the Father, for he is the only possible word by which God can address himself to a world of sinners. My Father has entrusted everything into my hands. None knows the Son truly except the Father, and none knows the Father truly except the Son, and those to whom it is the Son's good pleasure to reveal Him. Matthew 11.27 Life is resident in Him in virtue of an eternal communication from the Father. All who came before Him, and all who will come after Him, and who offer any other way than Himself, He compares with thieves and robbers of mankind. It is I who am the door of the sheepfold. Those others who have found their way in are all thieves and robbers. To these the sheep paid no attention. I am the door, a man will find salvation if he makes his way in through me. He will come and go at will and find pasture. John 10, 7 No one else ever made his personality the condition of securing peace or eternal life. Our blessed Lord, however, identified personality with a door. It is an emblem of separation because on the one side is the world and on the other side the home. But also it is a sign of protection, hospitality, and relationship. As the old city of Troy had but one gate, so our blessed Lord said that he is the only gate to salvation. Being united with him, he called a trysting place, where he and souls meet in the ecstasy of love. Come and go at will would seem to indicate a union of both the contemplative and the actual life, for the combination of an interior union with Christ is here combined with practical obedience in the world of action. Not only did our Lord identify all truth and life with himself, but he put forth his claim to judge the world, something no mere man would ever do. He said that as the judge of all, he would return again, seated on a throne of glory and attended by the angels, to judge all men according to their works. Imagination recoils at the thought of any human being able to penetrate into the depths of all consciences, to ferret out all hidden motives, and to pass judgment on them for all eternity. But this final judgment was a long way off and hidden from the eyes of men. There would be a symbol or rehearsal of the final judgment, which would be the destruction of Jerusalem, and which would be accomplished before the end of the actual generation of Christ's day. It would also be a prelude to the final destruction at the end of the world, when the kingdom of God would be established in its eternal and glorious phase. Speaking of the end of the world, he said, And then the sign of the Son of Man will be seen in heaven. Then it is that all the tribes of the land will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming upon the clouds of heaven with great power and glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud blast of the trumpet to gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Matthew 24, 30 when he comes to judge, it will not be merely the circumscribed area of the earth in which he labored and revealed himself. Rather, it will be all the nations and the empires of the world. The time of his second coming he knows not as man, but only as God. He will not tell it except in warning that it will be sudden, like lightning. He came as a man of sorrows. Then he shall come in his glory. The attributes of his suffering humanity will be necessary for his identification. Hence, after his resurrection, he kept the scars. With him will be the angels, and all the nations will be divided into two classes, sheep and goats. As he divided men on earth into two classes, namely those who hated and those who loved him, so he would divide them then. I am the good shepherd, he said of himself, the title he would vindicate on the last day by a separation of his flock of sheep from the goats. 
the sheep will hear themselves commended for loving service to him, even when it was unconscious service. There are many more people loving and serving him than one suspects. It would seem that the most surprised of all will be the social workers who will ask, When was it that we saw thee hungry? Was it case number 643? The wicked, on the other hand, will find themselves refusing him when they refuse to do anything for their fellow man in his name. He will sit down upon the throne of his glory, and all nations will be gathered in his presence, where he will divide men one from the other, as the shepherd divides the sheep from the goats. He will set the sheep on his right, and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those who are on his right hand, Come, you that have received a blessing from my father, take possession of the kingdom which has been prepared for you since the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food, thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you brought me home, naked, and you clothed me, sick, and you cared for me, a prisoner, and you came to me. Whereupon the just will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw thee hungry and fed thee, or thirsty and gave thee drink? When was it that we saw thee a stranger and brought thee home, or naked and clothed thee? And the king will answer them, Believe me, when you did it to one of the least of my brethren here, you did it to me. Then he will say to those who are on his left hand, in their turn, Go far from me, you that are accursed, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you never gave me food. I was thirsty, and you never gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you did not bring me home. I was naked, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not care for me. Whereupon they in their turn will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw thee hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to thee? And he will answer them, Believe me, when ye refused it to one of the least of my brethren here, you refused it to me. And these shall pass on to eternal punishment, and the just to eternal life. Matthew 25:31. His words even imply that philanthropy has deeper depths than is generally realized. The great emotions of compassion and mercy are traced to him. There is more to human deeds than the doers are aware. He identified every act of kindness as an expression of sympathy with himself. All kindnesses are either done explicitly or implicitly in his name, or they are refused explicitly or implicitly in his name. Muhammad said that alms had to be given, but not in his name. Our Lord made that the condition, but as a mere man it would have been foolishness. Furthermore, only an omniscient will could ever judge the motives behind all philanthropy, to decide when it was charity and when it was self-praise. That he claimed he would do, and with such finality that the repercussions would be eternal. He who was the Redeemer said that he would also be the judge. It is a beautiful arrangement of providence that the judge and the redeemer meet in the same person. When one takes into account also his reiterated assertions about his divinity, such as asking us to love him above parents, to believe in him even in the face of persecution, to be ready to sacrifice our bodies in order to save our souls in union with him, to call him just a good man ignores the facts. No man is good unless he is humble, and humility is a recognition of truth concerning oneself. A man who thinks he is greater than he actually is is not humble, but a vain and boastful fool. How can any man claim prerogatives over conscience and over history and over society and the world and still claim he is meek and humble of heart? But if he is God as well as man, his language falls into place and everything that he says is intelligible. But if he is not what he claimed to be, then some of his most precious sayings are nothing but bombastic outbursts of self-adulation that breathe rather the spirit of Lucifer than the spirit of a good man. What avails him to proclaim the law of self-renouncement if he himself renounces truth to call himself God? Even his sacrifice on the cross becomes a suspect and a dated thing when it goes hand in hand with delusions of grandeur and infernal conceit. He could not be called even a sincere teacher, for no sincere teacher would allow anyone to construe his claims to share the rank and the name of the great God in heaven. The choice that lies before men is either the hypothesis of culpable insincerity or the fact that he spoke the literal truth and therefore must be taken at his word. It is easier to believe that God has achieved His works of wonder and mercy in His divine Son on earth than to close the moral eye to the brightest spot that meets it in human history and thus lapse into despair. No human could be good, 
he would be arrogant and blasphemous to have made the assertions he did concerning himself. Instead of being above his moral followers who call themselves Christians, he would have been infinitely below the level of the worst of them. It is easier to believe what he said about himself, namely, that he is God, than to explain how the world could ever have taken as a model such an unmitigated liar, such a contemptuous boaster. It is only because Jesus is God that the human character of Jesus is a manifestation of the divine. We must either lament his madness or adore his person, but we cannot rest on the assumption that he was a professor of ethical culture. Rather, one can say with Chesterton, Expect the grass to wither and the birds to drop dead out of the air, when a strolling carpenter's apprentice says calmly and almost carelessly, like one looking over his shoulder, Before Abraham was, I am. The Roman sergeant, who had his own gods and was hardened both to war and death, came to the answer during the crucifixion, when both his reason and his conscience affirmed the truth, Truly this is the Son of God.